For today, let's talk about this Bible passage from the book of Matthew. Now, this is honestly a very interesting Bible passage to me because this is one where we read this, but we don't always read these verses together at the same time. When we read this part of the Bible, we often read the calling of Matthew in verse 9 as one thing. We read verses 10 to 13 as a different, unrelated conversation. And then we look at verses 14 to 17 as one more entirely different conversation altogether. Very rarely will we take the time to look at these the way they were meant to be understood as three parts of a connected lesson, one single concrete story making a very important point. Now, the three parts of this story, Matthew's calling, the argument with the Pharisees about sinners, and the argument with John's disciples about fasting, they might seem unrelated. But as Jesus often does in the Bible, he's using the different people and situations around him to make a larger point about who God is, demonstrating God through his behavior as much as through his teaching. So we start out here with Jesus calling a brand new disciple, Matthew, and then immediately taking that new disciple into a place where he would not only be in conflict with these Pharisees, which we might expect given their very rigid and uncompromising theology, but also into conflict with another group of disciples that come from a very similar background, a similar theological school to Jesus. Think about that for just a minute. Matthew's first exposure to following Jesus is being thrown right into conflict. He sees right away that the Christian path leads to places of conflict, places that put Christ's followers up against the traditions and expectations of the world. And as soon as Matthew decides to follow Jesus, he immediately gets drawn into this moment of contradiction between the beliefs of the strict religious traditions of his time and the confusing, sometimes difficult path that God has laid before Jesus and his followers. And that conflict begins with what is easily my favorite question ever asked of Jesus in this gospel. When the group of traditionalist Pharisees approach Matthew and ask, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I want us to take a moment and sit with that word there, sinners. One of the more interesting things I have found about the teachings of Jesus is that when he talks about sin, he's usually very, very, very specific. He will give details, tell stories, weave parables, and a more, all to explain to the people who are listening exactly what he means. In Matthew 25, for example, when he's talking about that great separation between those God who will welcome as beloved and faithful and those who will get to experience eternal fire, 
Jesus doesn't just call the unfaithful folk sinners. He's very descriptive, very specific about what that means. He says, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Whenever sin comes up, Jesus may not always be clear. I mean, parables can be confusing for some after all, but he is usually very specific. It is not like Jesus to just refer to any group of people as sinners, as though the things that made someone a sinner were somehow self-explanatory, something that could be understood clearly and simply by everyone present. Jesus knows that sinner is a loaded word and one that is not well defined. So when we hear that word in today's story being used to describe the people that Jesus has specifically chosen to sit and have dinner with, we can understand that while this may be how the Pharisees describe Jesus' dinner companions, it is not at all how Jesus would describe them himself. You see, these Pharisees, like many of us, use the term sinner to refer to basically anyone who did not meet their rigid, specific, and very narrow understanding of what it meant to be a good person. Sometimes that might have had roots in the scripture, but often it was more cultural than anything. Tax collectors, for example, were just hated for who they were and what they did in society. But in those days, there was nothing in the scripture yet that said that tax collecting was a sin. To these people, the term sinner referred to the poor, the hungry, those who were ritually unclean, not unlike Nihon no Burakumin, for example. Um, it referred to disobedient women, anyone who happened to be from Samaria, anybody who was sick, Pretty much any sort of oppressed, suffering, or minority group in society could, and often did, wind up being considered a sinner by these kind of Pharisees. And this group, these sinners, is who Jesus, without a second thought, chooses to sit down and eat with. He chooses to sit with people who are suffering in society, not with those who are prospering. From society. He chooses to sit with those who have been abused, rejected, and left out rather than those who have been fully welcomed. And as he explains to those Pharisees, he chooses to show mercy to those beloved outsiders rather than sacrificing them in the name of social conformity. The love of the outcast is more important to Jesus than the comfort of society. As those Pharisees wanders off, then the Pharisees, they wander away, and the disciples of John, they come over next, and they're asking why it is that they fast often, the Pharisees fast often, but Jesus and his disciples don't fast very much. After all, as different as John's disciples and those conservative Pharisees might be, they can all at least agree on basic traditional practices, right? I mean, these important rituals that have been passed down in the church for generations, these ways of doing things that have not changed in ages upon ages, well, they must be good and right and true, yeah? And once again, Jesus contradicts them. 
Just like our church communities themselves, wineskins, which he uses as his, as his example, they are something that becomes more brittle and hard as they get old. They harden, they crack, and then they break, which is exactly what you do not want to happen to something that you are pouring wine into every day. If you don't bother to replace your wineskins from time to time, if you just take it for granted that what worked yesterday will work tomorrow, if you keep showing up in the morning and pouring new wine into that wineskin again and again and again and again, eventually that wineskin will start to leak. Now, at first, it'll just be a drop or two, tiny cracks, so small you might not even notice it. But before long, those cracks start to widen and the drops become a trickle and that trickle becomes a flood and a break. And before too long, that wineskin that you've been taking for granted, that you've been ignoring, that you've been using every day, can't hold any new wine at all. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you work at it, your best efforts will only end up with you pouring wine straight through the cracks and onto the floor. I mean, you may still have some wine left over pooled in the bottom of the broken wineskin, but nothing new that you put into it will stay. No amount of effort can make a broken wineskin hold new wine again. For a great many churches in this world, this is what life as a church has become. We make new programs, we invite friends, we hold concerts and parties and anything else we can think of, working our hearts to exhaustion, trying to infuse our communities with fresh new wine. We want people to come and to gather and to be a part of our life as a church community, but we want that community to be exactly the same as it always was. Old wineskins, but with new wine. So we keep pouring our efforts into bringing in new people, trying to fit them into the old systems, and we watch helplessly as all these new people fall right through the cracks. Young people wrestling with some of the greatest and most difficult ethical and moral questions of our time come to church and they find polished worship, shiny guitars, loud music, but no answers whatsoever. Families who are struggling to make it to the next paycheck come to church looking for mercy and grace and a little bit of hope, and they find churches run by a wealthy few who turn away the needy because it's not in the budget. Safety and stability become the focus of our churches, and that new wine just spills through into the floor. As we look around our sanctuaries wondering where Jesus is, we realize why this parable of the wineskins was paired with that first question, the one about the sinners. This passage shows us that Jesus doesn't gather together with those who do things the right way or those who've lived a safe and careful life in the cracked old wineskins of the traditional church. The loving work of Jesus isn't in here. It's out there. Jesus knows the thing that we don't that the next generation of the church is living and breathing right now among all those that we have long called sinners. The next generation of the church is growing and rising among those who are different, those who are unusual, and those who are weird. The next generation of the church is gathering and moving among all of those who live their lives in ways we don't yet understand, 
but who are made just as much in the image of God as any one of us. Jesus knows that the next generation of the church doesn't fit into our cracked and old wineskins, which is why we're meant to throw them out. Because the goal of our church, the goal of Christ's church, was never to dutifully and faithfully fix up the old wineskins anyway. The goal of Christ's church is to go out and find brand new wineskins, to fill them up with joy and hope and grace and mercy and love, and then to go out from these walls in search of all the lost and broken people of the world with whom we can share that overflowing cup of God's impossible love. So from today, as we go forward, as a people who I truly know love Christ with all of our hearts and our minds and our souls, let us start looking for new wineskins, new ways to be a church that sits with the oppressed and the suffering and the poor and the outcast, knowing that it is in this new and unexpected place, among new and unexpected people, where Christ Jesus always chooses to take a seat and share a meal. Amen.